This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're reading an early 1847 draft of the Communist Manifesto called The Principles of Communism by Frederick Engels. But in a shocking twist, we're actually going to read it out loud this time. So, it's time for part one of our close reading of The Principles of Communism. So I wanted to do this for a while. I think it's we're going to change format up a little bit here. And for, I think for the first time, we're actually going to read the reading uh, live on the air as we discuss it. Um, I know I've talked to some people and they said sometimes it can be confusing to listen to this because you almost have to have read the text to know what the hell we're talking about sometimes. Because, um, I mean, we tried to do this in the early days, but we never really have been very good at like systematically going and then this part and then that part and then this part. Uh, I don't know if it's like some kind of collective ADD that we all have and we just jump around to whatever our next thought is, but that's kind of what happens. So this time we're basically going to read Engels' classic text, The Principles of Communism. It's structured basically like a frequently asked questions uh, for Marxism. I mean, oftentimes when people like first pick up Marx, they'll pick up the Communist Manifesto, right? That's where it begins. But I actually think this is a much better resource, and I think it's much more uh, clear than the Manifesto, which was, you know, very polemical and kind of very much situated in its time. Whereas this, I think, is designed to sort of clarify classical Marx's definitions and categories in a way that's a lot more lucid and, I think, accessible to any Johnny Pearl off the street who wants to understand this shit. The manifesto really goes with a kind of historical narrative structure, whereas uh, Principles of Communism is, well, it's kind of Catholic. Yeah, it's a catechism. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. So this and Communist Confession of Faith are these two drafts by Engels that were reworked by Marx into the Communist Manifesto, but this goes with the question and answer format rather than the historical narrative structure. Yeah. And so when it says Marx and Engels wrote the manifesto, it's basically like dope FAQ angles. I'm going to chop this up. I think the league of the just or the communist league, like just asked Marx and Engels to just like rewrite this over again. Like <laughs> that's why there's more drafts. <laughs> like, thanks dudes. Like, I'm glad that you, you know, gave them the whole drafting treatment because, you know, the whole thing ended up producing like one of the most important works in language. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, it's hard to hard to overstate the impact of the Communist Manifesto. But I do agree with Jake that that kind of bombastic prose wall is, you know, catnip for me. It's it's a little distracting from the wait, what is communism? Yeah, yeah, it's it's no, it's a ghost. It's a ghost that um, scares rich people, which is true. But I think it's it's a necessary but insufficient definition. But yeah, the the drafting of this, I mean, of the manifesto, that was kind of the climax of uh, the young Karl Marx, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, worth watching. It's a pretty good movie. So should we should we get started? Let's dive in like good Catholic girls into the arms of the catechism and embrace the principles right. of communism. All right. So one. What is communism? 
Communism is the doctrine of the conditions of the liberation of the proletariat. Pretty straightforward, I think. I mean, at least it seems so to me. It's all about the liberation of the proletariat. It is not necessarily like a particular form. It's being liberation of the proletariat implies a certain kind of economic structure, but not a specific one. There's almost nothing stated about it other than it's, you know, emancipatory for the proletariat. And we should never lose sight of this most fundamental principle of communism. Right. There's no diagrams. It's not like once we all like grow hemp and use that as like the basis for the economy, it's none of that. It's just, it's the doctrine, the conditions, the liberation, of the proletariat. It's about the emancipation of a particular section of society. That is actually something that I think draft of a communist confession of faith gets better. The answer question one is pretty damn simple. Question one, are you a communist? Answer, yes. Question two, what is the aim of the communists? So this is basically question one of principles of communism. Right, right. Without the sort of literary flourish designed to make you imagine like a medieval inquisitor. Got it. Yeah. Answer. To organize society in such a way that every member of it can develop and use all of his capabilities and powers in complete freedom and without thereby infringing the basic conditions of this society. How do you wish to achieve the same, Socrates? By the elimination of private property and its replacement by community of property. But anyway, what I think is really interesting is that, like you said, Jake, that first answer, what is communism? It's the doctrine of the liberation of the proletariat. But the proletariat is the negation of the division of society into class. And so it's really interesting to see the two different sides of this in these two different drafts. Yeah, we should move on to principle of communism number two. Two, what is the proletariat? The proletariat is that class in society which lives entirely from the sale of its labor and does not draw profit from any kind of capital, whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand for labor, hence, on the changing state of business, on the vagaries of unbridled competition. The proletariat, or the class of proletarians, is, in a word, the working class of the 19th century. This is an interesting little section. Because as I was first just kind of reading through this, it did make me think like, well, there are some differences, I guess, between the proletariat and now, aren't there? And at the end he goes, yeah, this is the work of the working class of the 19th century. Almost as if they anticipated there'd be some slight differences. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's nice. Because um, I remember talking to uh, I don't know, someone during Occupy and I was trying to make the case that, you know, someone that gets some shitty little, like, I don't know, sub 401k, like, you know, fake, like, reimbursement program, you know, instead of having, like, a union and, you know, health care or something. <laughs> instead of having, like, you know, a good package, they, there's these weird remuneration schemes. And some of them are technically financial instruments, right? And this says, you know, the proletariat does not draw a profit from any kind of capital. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, would this person be proletariat? And they're like, no, it says in the principles of communism that they're not. Wait, this person literally said that? 100%. Jesus. Where did you live again? California. Okay. They're, they um, were from Russia. Yeah, no, it's this fucking coastal elites, man. They just, uh, they're corrupting. No, I mean, <laughs> to modify this today, because there are people who have like 401ks and stuff like that, or they have a lot of the things that conservatives will say, oh, well, look at all these poor people. They have flat screens. Are they really poor? What the problem is, is that sometimes like this stuff can sort of essentially corrupt the perspective of the proletariat and make them think that they have more in common with 
petty bourgeois or bourgeois strata than they actually do, right? Which is a particular challenge um, trying to develop and implement class politics today. But it's like, even if you do have like some certain things, if it isn't something from which you can really subsist, right? Like if you lost your capacity to labor, if you lost your job, how, how much would your other sources of income, how far would that carry you? If the answer isn't very far, then you're probably still proletarian. I love that line in the Rick Roderick video on Marx, where he says something like, don't think you're working class? Why don't you quit working? And in two years, we'll see how you're doing. <laughs> love it. Because the proletariat are not necessarily just, you know, the most downtrodden, the most exploited, you know? It's simply put the exploited on this wage basis and people dependent on that. Right. Like, and so again, also unemployed people. Right. But from the perspective of the definition of proletariat and settlers, for instance, you know, I think there's a bit of a conflict of definitions. I think one of Marx's first mentions of the proletariat is really interesting to look at because it's remarkably consistent for the rest of his life. Um, He rhetorically asks, in, I want to say this is maybe contribution to critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, but I'll, I'll have to double check that. But anyway, where then is the positive possibility of German emancipation? Answer, in formation of a class with radical chains, a class in civil society that is not of civil society, a class that is the dissolution of all classes, a sphere of society having a universal character because of its universal suffering and claiming no particular right because no particular wrong but unqualified wrong is perpetrated on it, a sphere that can invoke no traditional title but only a human title which does not partially oppose the consequences, but totally opposes the premises of the German political system, a sphere finally that cannot emancipate itself without emancipating itself from all the other spheres of society, thereby emancipating them. A sphere, in short, that is the complete loss of humanity and can only redeem itself through the total redemption of humanity, the dissolution of society as a particular class is the proletariat. I think that, again, here, Engels' definition of the proletariat in one draft captures its universality a little more than the other. But I think we can see from Marx that that is a a key feature. Oh, I wanted to remark that Karl Marx was a classicist. He was super into all that old shit. I bring that up because proletariat is French, derived from the Latin proletarius, which designated a landless laborer population. Kind of like in the American South, they competed with slaves. They were the lowest of the low in Roman society. They were even on a lower level than slaves because they weren't attached to any wealthy citizens as slaves were. Prole means offspring, and Arius is related to wealth. So the word proletarian essentially means producers of offspring, that all they had to contribute as wealth to the Republic is their offspring. And producers of offspring is, is pretty heteronormative, you know, so I don't think we can say that anymore. I, I always thought proletariat meant like an ignorant person, but maybe I'm thinking of another word. It means breeder, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Marx had a huge breeding kink, and we're, uh, we're all just passing that torch on. <laughs> Please don't let Twitter know that it means breeder. <laughs> okay, we'll cut this part. Three. Proletarians, then, have not always existed? No. There have always been poor and working classes and the working class have mostly been poor. But there have not always been workers and poor people living under conditions as they are today. In other words, there have not always been proletarians, any more than there has always been 
free unbridled competitions. You know, the proletarian is the product of capitalism, and capitalism has not always existed. So I feel like that kind of historical break, that's kind of foundational to Marx's thought. It's kind of a consequence of that. Well, yeah, it's, it's a consequence of materialism, yeah. There's always been poor people, there'll always be poor people, is what you know, a lot of people try and say, and... You know, Marx would argue, well, actually, the way that people were poor and the way that they related to production has changed historically and could change again. Yeah, capitalism is a very specific social formation, and Engels emphasizes proles not as the first working class or even the first class to participate in a market. It's the first class that's kind of compulsorized by historical conditions to have to sell their labor on the market. Part of that negationary spirit of the proletariat, they are born of capitalist civil society. Like their condition is that war of all against all, that private realm. They're expropriated of having any resources to reproduce their own existence. Right, feudal working classes had the conditions of self-substance. Proletarians are basically entirely dependent upon drawing a wage from an employer. You know, historically. Proletarians, especially urban proletarians, have had like little side hustles here and there, but without the main source of their subsistence, their SOL. Yeah, and this nails down the potential thing that's brought up by mentioning that Marx is drawing from Roman history. Well, does he mean this thing that just is always around? Eh, not really. It's just inspired by that classification in the Roman system and the way that it's presented here. And this is common to a lot of Marx's work that he's trying to name a specific historical entity that enters history with capitalism. Which brings us to four. How did the proletariat originate? The proletariat originated in the Industrial Revolution, which took place in England in the last half of the 18th century, and has since then been repeated in all the civilized countries of the world. This Industrial Revolution was precipitated by the discovery of the steam engine, various spinning machines, the mechanical loom, and a whole series of other mechanical devices. These machines, which were very expensive and hence could only be bought by big capitalists, altered the whole mode of production and displaced the former workers, because the machines turned out cheaper and better commodities than the workers could produce with their inefficient spinning wheels and hand loom. The machines delivered industry wholly into the hands of the big capitalists and rendered entirely worthless the meager property of the workers, tools, looms, etc. The result was that capitalists soon had everything in their hands and nothing remained to the workers. This marked the introduction of the factory system into the textile industry. Once the impulse to the introduction of machinery in the factory system had been given, this system spread quickly to all other branches of industry, especially cloth and book printing, pottery, and the metal industries. Labor was more and more divided among the individual workers, so that the worker who previously had done a complete piece of work now only did a part of that piece. This division of labor made it possible to produce things faster and cheaper. It reduced the activity of the individual worker to simple, endlessly repeated mechanical motions, which could be performed not only as well, but much better than by a machine. In this way, all these industries fell, one after another, under the dominance of steam, machinery, and the factory system, just as spinning and weaving had already done. But at the same time, they also fell into the hands of big capitalists, and their workers were deprived of whatever independence remained to them. Gradually, not only genuine manufacture, but also handicrafts came within the province of the factory system as big capitalists increasingly displaced the small master craftsmen by setting up huge workshops, which saved many expenses and permitted an elaborate division of labor. This is how it has come about that, in civilized countries at the present time, nearly all kinds of labor are performed in factories, and, in nearly all branches of work, 
handicrafts, and manufacture have been superseded. This process has, to an even greater degree, ruined the old middle class, especially the small handicraftsmen. It has entirely transformed the condition of the workers, and two new classes have been created, which are gradually swallowing up all the others. These are, 1. The class of big capitalists, who, in all civilized countries, are already in almost exclusive possession of all the means of subsistence and of the instruments, machines, factories, and materials necessary for the production of the means of subsistence. This is the bourgeois class, or the bourgeoisie. 2. The class of the wholly propertyless, who are obliged to sell their labor to the bourgeoisie in order to get, in exchange, the means of subsistence for their support. This is called the class of proletarians, or the proletariat. That was a little longer. Yeah, that's a broad definition of the proletariat there, in a good way. For people working in a sort of dialectical tradition, there's not much of a difference between definition and uh, like the historical emergence of something. There's some essences coming into being here. Exactly. You cannot freeze the understanding of the origin of the proletariat. You must look at it in history. Which, you know, like, it stamps Marx and Engels' work with a great character that I don't think most of the people who follow in their traditions wield as well. And this little narrative here that we get in broad strokes is something that you see spelled out, obviously, in the manifesto, but of course in Capital. It really hammers home how capital ends up being his life's work. This is right here, the, the start of the Brenner debate, just like how did capitalism arise as a specific social formation? So that's a very wide debate. It's been going on for a, a good while. They're basically explaining stuff that was pretty much empirically pretty obvious at the time. And it's, what's interesting is how he talks about how it, it eradicated the middle class, but middle classes would eventually reemerge. In some ways, uh, the new middle classes were shittier than the old middle classes. Yeah, when Aristotle said that the middle classes should run society, he's not talking about these fucking boomers. Yeah, he's not talking about like guys who own like car dealerships and fucking like people who are like high in the higher tiers of herbal life and shit like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of talk about the need for petty bourgeois specialists, and I get that you know you need engineering education and all that kind of thing. But the vast majority of middle class people are just totally de-skilled and useless to the proletariat at this point. Yeah, what you need is the kind of time petty bourgeois people have. <laughs> yeah, use it for something other than golf. Um, let's see. Yeah, it talks about a little bit kind of what precipitated the Industrial Revolution. Um, I thought you were about to say Angles talks a little bit about golf. <laughs> no, jeez, he, he really covered everything. He wasn't a fox hunting, though. That was like the bourgeois version of golf. From I, back I think that's problematic. Fox hunt? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. I like foxes, yeah. And I hate um, golf. <laughs> so if it's analogous to golf, I find that offensive. You get an idea. I remember reading um, just like how well off like Ingalls was. There was a point where I guess Marx needed some money, you know, common refrain. And Ingalls was like, "Well, dude, if you need some money, you should have told me sooner." Because like my dad gave me some money to buy a horse. Now, I could have put off buying a horse for a few weeks and just sent you some money. But uh, that, you know, <laughs> uh, of course. Anyway, why well, why not? So yeah, talks about the introduction of machinery and how that altered a mode of production. He doesn't just. Who is it we just read who basically like said like Marx just like worship technological progress and shit like oh, that? Oh, um, Spangler? Yeah, Spangler. Yeah, he's talking about Europe. He's talking about Europe. Um, make that perfectly clear. Those are the civilized country of the world. Like, it's mostly what he means. <laughs> I mean, that was the locus of capitalist development. I mean, England 
England was kind of ground zero for that. So if you were if you were going to study that, that would be the place to go and the place to talk about. It's kind of funny to think about like what parts of the Euro world that we would consider part of, you know, the West that weren't really like industrialized. <laughs> to think of angles being like, yeah, it's not like a civilized country. You know, this part of Italy. <laughs> this is barbarism. Well, I mean, like a big thing that in- influenced Engels growing up was observing like the introduction of capitalism because the family that he came from were like old school. They basically ran kind of like an artisanal village, essentially. There was a much more like kind of feudal sense of obligation between like their family and the people who were working under them, so to speak. When Engels was a child, I could imagine like his older relatives telling him about the old days and how their family was, you know, they they were a pillar of this community and they were is part of like the sort of Christian tradition of this and that and the sort of, you know, old school field of reciprocity only to go basically work for his dad in England where he's just like working these people to the bone and then kicking them to the curb if they complain or if their bodies break and just being like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? You know, Angles was a rebel against his family. There's a great October 1840 letter to his sister, Marie, where he says, like, next time don't write to me in this way or whatever. Mother leaves the letters lying there until she writes herself. That's often a long time. But what I wanted to write you, and you must not write this home, for I want to surprise them with it next spring. I now have an enormous mustache. And he writes about, like rebelling through this mustache and about this party that he held with his friends where he says that quite enormous quantities of port and wine are going to be drunk and though there are only five gentlemen they're all very good drinkers almost as good as i and they're all going to get together after like trying to grow mustaches for wait is this is this at the end of october i think they're doing like no shave november or something <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, everyone with the courage to defy Philistinism and wear a mustache should therefore sign. Yeah, so basically he defies his family and the Philistines by wearing a mustache, and they have a big party and get drunk about it. Ingalls was very much a man who very, very strongly did not want to become his father. Five. Under what conditions does the sale of the labor of the proletarians to the bourgeoisie take place? Labor is a commodity, like any other, and its price is therefore determined by exactly the same laws that apply to other commodities. In a regime of big industry or a free competition, as we shall see, the two come to the same thing, the price of a commodity is, on the average, always equal to its cost of production. Hence, the price of labor is also equal to the cost of production of labor. But, The costs of production of labor consist of precisely the quantity of means of subsistence necessary to enable the worker to continue working and to prevent the working class from dying out. The worker will therefore get no more for his labor than is necessary for this purpose. The price of labor, or the wage, will, in other words, be the lowest, the minimum, required for the maintenance of life. However, since business is sometimes better and sometimes worse, it follows that the worker sometimes gets more and sometimes gets less for his commodities. But again, just as the industrialist, on the average of good times and bad, gets no more and no less for his commodities than what they cost, similarly, on the average, the worker gets no more and no less than his minimum. This economic law of wages operates the more strictly the greater the degree to which big industry has taken possession of all branches of production. 
Yeah, there's a couple of asterisks there for Marxists tuning into value theory. Obviously, the distinction between labor and labor power. So labor power has been made into a commodity and plays a special role in the labor theory of value. But also this notion of the minimum subsistence level as being the cost of what you might think of as labor power, or as he puts it there, the cost of labor. I think there is a sort of additional like social sustenance. You know, it's not literally the bare minimum for biological reproduction. And it really depends kind of on where you are, because there's some pretty ruthless forms of exploitation that do pay like a little bit over the bare subsistence. Right. But it's sort of like how there is the law of value and prices will roughly on average approximately correlate to labor time. But there is also supply and demand, which will cause prices to fluctuate. And so what they're saying here is it's no different with labor. And you're right. I mean, socially, there will be kind of what is considered the bare subsistence will shift and will change in one society to another. But you'll notice as time goes on, the capitalists will push closer and closer to that bare subsistence level. You know, like usually regimes that change that but still remain capitalist will find themselves, you know, slouching back towards pure exploitation over time. We're kind of seeing that, you know, in the United States where we developed laws to say, okay, if someone makes $40 an hour, you have to do this and that. So they just have people work like 39 hours, right? And say they're part-time. Uh, and, you know, eventually they'll find ways to get rid of the laws and make things as shitty here as they are. And it'll take time to get there, but politically within capitalism, without a you know strong working class, that's where things will tend towards. Yeah, there'll be a tendency towards immiseration without intervention. Even a petty bourgeois worker is going to face this tendency of the capitalist class to try and get labor for an absolute minimum possible. Oftentimes, the petty bourgeois will have to compete with big capitalist firms and will thus basically have to self-exploit because they have to produce things under similar conditions, right? Yeah, the guys who run a convenience store basically live there, essentially, you know, things like that. Like, And the, oftentimes, the petty bourgeois are even more subject to the whims of the market because they don't have a big sort of firm to hide within. And if the markets go bad, they absorb those risks as well in a more direct way, maybe than a worker who was working for a large capitalist firm. These ideas were not fully developed here and would be, I think, more elaborated within capital later in a more sophisticated way. But I think basically this is a pretty clear explanation and something you could give to somebody, again, Johnny Prohl off the street, who could pick this up and you know, it could maybe explain something to him that he could take and use to understand why his life is so shitty, you know? Oh, yeah. That's just asterisk for, I don't know, if there was some nerd podcast about this right, Joe right. Pearl pamphlet, let's just say, hypothetically. Right, that podcast might want to explore this sort of thing, but, you know, we can, we can leave that to them. Yeah, can leave them playing with their pocket calculators in their locker. Okay, uh, moving on. Six. What working classes were there before the Industrial Revolution? The working classes have always, according to the different stages of development of society, lived in different circumstances and had different relations to the owning and ruling classes. In antiquity, the workers were the slaves of the owners, just as they still are in many backwards countries and even in the southern part of the United States. In the Middle Ages, there were the serfs of the landowning nobility, as they still are in Hungary, Poland, and Russia. In the Middle Ages, and indeed, right up to the Industrial Revolution, there were also journeymen in the cities who worked in the service of petty bourgeois masters. Gradually, as manufacture developed, these journeymen became manufacturing workers who were even then employed by larger capitalists. So again, pretty broad. Uh, I think that, you know, 
you see here the beginning of a whole uh, long tradition of Marxism analyzing um, differing modes of production and differing class formations that have existed in different societies throughout history. This is kind of just a kernel example. Still probably hasn't been totally fleshed out or worked out 100%, but, uh, you know. Engels explored the serfs to capitalism transition because serfs had their surplus extracted through these political and military extra-productive means, you know, whereas in capitalism we have the development of a proletariat and the market is the primary sphere for surplus extraction. So, so I don't know, it, it all seems to keep jumping back to this defining of the proletariat in a certain way. And it should be noted that I'm pretty sure it was Engels that brought this to Marx and not the other way around. The basic historical kind of theory that Marx is most known for is really a joint project. Yeah. Marx has a materialist perspective all the way back to his like thesis. His doctoral thesis, but this kind of historical look at, you know, the different class structures throughout history of history as economies based on exploitation across history in different kind of evolving forms. Historical materialism, more or less. I think all Lexi's saying is like these people who are trying basically throw angles under the bus or blame him for everything that went wrong with Marxism or went wrong with the Soviet Union or what the fuck ever, completely full of shit. You know, it didn't angles and Marx, like, wasn't German ideology one of their first collaborations, right? Wasn't the Holy Family before that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very early in their work that they come to it. There are people like Postone who try to basically take out all the angles, you know, try to get rid of the idea of historical materialism as, you know, modes of production throughout history. Just focus on capital, you know, focus on the dialectic of capital, you know. But very few people do this very consistently. It's very hard to strip Marx of angles, and I don't think totally advisable. No. Yeah, I mean, the temptation is understandable because, you know, Engels often made some big sociological and historical claims with information that was less than complete. Yeah, but, he's got some whoppers. Yeah, but you can still take the overall methodology and even, you know, some of the core theory. And I think it's, as the work of many scholars have shown, it's still extremely useful. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's better at explaining the world than kind of any other particular tradition. You know, that's the thing about Marxism. Like, honestly, like, to me, like, Bob Avakian's view of the world explains more than any neoliberal or <laughs> Keynesian theorist. I'm serious. Like, you don't think uh, even Fukuyama's Emergence of Order series or whatever can hold a no, candle? No, honestly, even Marxism at its most crude is better than anything else in town, as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to have to chew on that. I'm thinking about, like, Jared Diamond seems maybe better than Bob Avakian. Yeah, I actually have a book of his on collapse I'm meaning to read, but... Interesting dude. I don't know. I mean, Bob Avakian says we can smoke weed under socialism, so I'm with Jake. And that's all I need to hear, baby. Sorry. Uh, I'm way ahead of him. Here's something, Bob. <laughs> Did you know we can smoke weed under capitalism? Um, okay. Uh, why are we talking about Bob Avakian? Let's talk about a real beard. Okay, so uh, now we're going to get into human farming. <laughs> uh, seven. In what way do proletarians differ from slaves? The slave is sold once and for all. The proletarian must sell himself daily and hourly. The individual slave, property of one master, is assured in existence, however miserable it may be, because of the master's interest. The individual proletarian, property, as it were, of the entire bourgeois class which buys his labor only when someone has need of it, has no secure existence. This existence is assured only to the class as a whole. The slave, is outside competition. 
The proletariat is in it and experiences all its vagaries. The slave counts as a thing, not as a member of society. Thus, the slave can have a better existence than the proletarian, while the proletarian belongs to a higher stage of social development and, himself, stands on a higher social level than the slave. The slave frees himself when, of all the relations of private property, he abolishes only the relation of slavery and thereby becomes a proletarian. The proletarian can free himself only by abolishing private property in general. I just want to make a note that he's thinking of Roman slavery and not American slavery. It's just kind of messed up in the context of American slavery. Right. If we read this in America for understandable reasons, like you have a very specific image of what slavery is. He's basically saying, yeah, a slave is a particular form of property, so you only have to abolish that particular form of property, whereas the proletarian, for reasons that are maybe a little more obscure, has to abolish private property in general. It's pretty similar, but I'd like to read the answer given in a confession of faith. Yeah, go for it. Question 10. In what way does the proletarian differ from the slave? Answer. The slave is sold once and for all. The proletarian has to sell himself by the day and by the hour. The slave is the property of one master and for that very reason has a guaranteed substance, however wretched it may be. The proletarian is, so to speak, the slave of the entire bourgeois class, not of one master, and therefore has no guaranteed substance, since nobody buys his labor if he does not need it. The slave is accounted a thing, and not a member of civil society. The proletarian is recognized as a person, as a member of civil society. The slave may, therefore, have a better substance than the proletarian, but the latter stands at a higher stage of development. The slave frees himself by becoming a proletarian, abolishing from the totality of property relationships only the relationship of slavery. The proletarian can free himself only by abolishing property in general. Now, I think that's interesting, and I wonder if one of the reasons this has changed, too, is like the very specific semantics of, you know, the Marxist definition of civil society versus society and civil society being kind of a product of modernity. Because if he's talking about the kind of Roman slave that is kind of prior to civil society as a modern form, a lot of this European political theory is drawing from Roman examples. I think it's safe to say that when they're talking about society in general, they're talking about, like, yeah, bourgeois civil society. I like the Confessions one a little more because it's a little less amenable to an uncharitable reading. Right. It says, however wretched that substance may be, it recognizes that the point we're making is just about productive forces and the means of substance, not about who's having the best life. He acknowledges, like, the misery of, like, the slave and the other one, too. Um, there's another point that was made in both that I thought was interesting, how the individual proletarian is still property, but property of the bourgeois class as a whole. I think that's like a big part of like what is so insidious, and in some ways what is so effective about capitalism is that the bourgeois class does collectively own all of society, but they have enough plausible deniability because they only own specific things, even though they have common class interests. There are massive sectors of things that nobody's responsible for and they don't have to claim responsibility for, and they don't have to pay the costs for. Like, kind of pure, uncut capitalism. You know, that's how you get all this shit. That's how the system is often able to overlook so much of the systemic violence that also exists maybe in, like, totalitarian societies, but because, quote-unquote, totalitarian societies, the state is kind of responsible for everything, you know, claims a certain level of totalization. But you can talk about, like, famines and shit like that completely ignore its existence under capitalism because 
hey man, I just run Ikea. I'm not responsible for what goes on in Africa. You know what I mean? Right. There's this public-private distinction to capitalism that I think allows it a certain specific plausible deniability. I mean, socialist revolutionary states ape the modern political state in certain ways, but there was an attempt to bridge the economic and the public in a certain way. You know, it wasn't totally successful. and, And economic matters you know, still ended up being the determinant in a certain way for the state. There was a campaign uh, done by the uh, the tankies over at Ard slash socialism to create a page on Wikipedia that was like deaths from capitalist societies, because there's a similar one for, you know, quote unquote, socialist societies. And they kept making the page and it kept getting taken down until a bunch of people got, you know, blocked from editing Wikipedia. But Wikipedia, for the most part, is pretty fair about shit. But whoever mods that thing can't grasp the distinction. I don't think it was necessarily people just being like, you know, libertarian or capitalist ideologues blocking that. It's because there's something that seems almost offensive about suggesting that, like, capitalist society can be responsible for the deaths and the livelihoods of society as a whole in a way that you would attribute to socialist states, you know? Good thing we made ourselves the political class and became responsible for pretty much private affairs just continuing to happen and, uh... That's all called communism now. I mean, because the famines happened, you know, and and it's interesting to think of the state as making the kind of false claim to representing a kind of general social universal and the Soviet unions trying to reconcile that universal in particular and not being able to do it because capitalism hasn't done that. I mean, that is the modern political state for the bourgeoisie, but because we tried to bridge that gap between public and private, we are then credited with everything that happens in both realms. You have to look at that in historical context, though. I mean, there's a problematic fallout to that, but the way you phrase that almost makes it sound like it was like a conscious decision to do that instead of being like kind of the outcome of like a series of contingencies. And kind of like ad hoc historical decisions and political decisions, you know? There's two dominant strategies that people deal with. The big difference in the way that people look at capitalism versus the attempts at socialism is that they try to discredit the hysterical, you know, inflating methodology that people use to count up socialist deaths, or they try to apply that same stuff to capitalist systems. I actually much prefer the second approach because I think these hysterical ways of doing death counts is the most critical possible way. Yeah, I do like it Like when people make those graphics. like It basically applies the same methodology and kind of shows how ridiculous it is, and that gets people more mad than anything, which, you know, that's funny. Okay. But you know what? Like, maybe we should look at things that way. Capitalist hunger is democide. You know what I mean? Moving forward. Okay. Eight. In what way do proletarians differ from serfs? The serf possesses and uses an instrument of production, a piece of land, in exchange for which he gives up a part of his product or part of the services of his labor. The proletarian works with the instruments of production of another for the account of this other in exchange for a part of the product. The serf gives up, the proletarian receives. The serf has an assured existence, the proletarian does not. The serf is outside competition, the proletariat is in it. The serf liberates himself in one of three ways. Either he runs away to the city and therefore becomes a handicraftsman, or Instead of products and services, he gives money to his lord and thereby becomes a free tenant. Or, he overthrows his feudal lord and himself becomes a property owner. In short, by one route or another, he gets into the owning class and enters into competition. The proletariat liberates himself by abolishing competition, private property, 
at all class differences. So, I think probably the most problematic aspect of this is that last sentence. Because in analyzing the surf, Engels pulls kind of all of all of the options that were kind of on the table for the individual surf. Um, but the proletarian does sometimes have opportunities for class transcendence, right? They could try and start a small business and enter into the petty bourgeoisie. They can go into crime. There's probably other things that aren't immediately jumping to mind, right? I mean, it would be nice if the proletariat always immediately organized for the overthrow of capitalism, but those aren't always the options available. Well, let's put it this way. If you just change that N at the end of proletarian to a T and make that himself a nice itself. Nine. In what way do proletarians differ from handicraftsmen? In contrast to the proletarian, the so-called handicraftsmen, as he still existed almost everywhere in the past 18th century, and still exists here and there at present, is a proletarian at most temporarily. His goal is to acquire capital himself, wherewith to exploit other workers. He can often achieve this goal where guilds still exist or where freedom from guild restrictions has not yet led to the introduction of factory-style methods into the crafts, nor yet to fierce competition. But as soon as the factory system is introduced into the crafts and competition flourishes fully, this perspective dwindles away, and the handicraftsman becomes more and more a proletarian. The handicraftsman therefore frees himself by becoming either bourgeois or entering the middle class in general, or becoming a proletarian because of competition, as is now more often the case. In which case, he can free himself by joining the proletarian movement, i.e. the more or less communist movement. I guess maybe like the modern version of this would be you know, like plumbers and shit like that. Yeah. Right? We need a better way of understanding the idea of like skill rents and stuff like that mm-hmm. than I think is available to a lot of popular Marxists. But there is a basis for this in volume three. That's a worthwhile line of inquiry. We, uh, we got a little footnote here. Oh, apparently Engels left half a page blank here in the manuscript. And we get this from the Communist Confession of Faith draft. All right. Yeah. All right. Ten. In what way do proletarians differ from manufacturing workers? The manufacturing worker of the 16th to 18th centuries still had, but with few exception, an instrument of production in his own possession, his loom, the family spinning wheel, a little plot of land which he cultivated in his spare time. The proletarian has none of these things. The manufacturing worker almost always lives in the countryside and in a more or less patriarchal relation to his landlord or employer. The proletarian lives, for the most part, in the city, and his relation to his employer is purely a cash relation. The manufacturing worker is torn out of his patriarchal relation by big industry, loses whatever property he still has, and in this way becomes a proletarian. Yep. Further comparisons. Yep, that's what happened. This is a more historical form than the other, than the handicraftsman. Okay, here we go. This is a big one. 11. What were the immediate consequences of the Industrial Revolution and of the division of society into bourgeoisie and proletariat? First, the lower and lower prices of industrial products brought about by machine labor totally destroyed, in all countries of the world, the old system of manufacture or industry based upon hand labor. In this way, all semi-barbarian countries, which had hitherto been more or less strangers to historical development, and whose industry had been based on manufacture, were violently forced out of their isolation. They brought the cheaper commodities of the English and allowed their own manufacturing workers to be ruined. Countries which had known no progress for thousands of years, for example, India, 
were thoroughly revolutionized. <laughs> and even China is now on the way to a revolution. We have come to the point where a new machine invented in England deprives millions of Chinese workers of their livelihood within a year's time. In this way, big industry has brought all the people of the earth into contact with each other, has merged all local markets into one world market, has spread civilization and progress everywhere, and has thus ensured that whatever happens in civilized countries will have repercussions in all other countries. It follows that if the workers in England or France now liberate themselves, this must set off revolution in all other countries, revolutions which, sooner or later, must accomplish the liberations of their respective working class. Second, wherever big industries displace manufacture, the bourgeoisie developed in wealth and power to the utmost and made itself the first class of the country. The result was that, wherever this happened, the bourgeoisie took political power into its own hands and displaced the hitherto ruling class, the aristocracy, the guild masters, and their representative, the absolute monarchy. The bourgeoisie annihilated the power of the aristocracy, the nobility, by abolishing the entailment of estates, in other words, by making landed property subject to purchase and sale, and by doing away with the special privileges of the nobility. It destroyed the power of the guild masters by abolishing guilds and handicraft privileges. In their place, it put in competition, that is, a state of society in which everyone has the right to enter into any branch of industry, the only obstacle being a lack of necessary capital. The introduction of free competition is thus public declaration that from now on, the members of society are unequal only to the extent that their capitals are unequal, that capital is the decisive power, and therefore the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, have become the first class in society. Free competition is necessary for the establishment of big industry because it is the only condition of society in which big industry can make its way. Having destroyed the social power of the nobility and the guild masters, the bourgeois also destroyed their political power. Having raised itself to the actual position of first class in society, it proclaims itself to be also the dominant political class. It does this through the introduction of the representative system, which rests on bourgeois equality before the law and the recognition of free competition and in European countries, takes the form of constitutional monarchy. In these constitutional monarchies, only those who possess a certain capital are voters, that is to say, only members of the bourgeoisie. These bourgeois voters choose the deputies, and these bourgeois deputies, by using their right to refuse to vote taxes, choose a bourgeois government. Third, everywhere the proletariat develops in step with the bourgeoisie. In proportion, as the bourgeoisie grows in wealth, the proletariat grows in numbers. Four, since the proletarians can be employed only by capital, and since capital extends only through employing labor, it follows that the growth of the proletariat proceeds at precisely the same pace as the growth of capital. Simultaneously, this process draws members of the bourgeoisie and proletarians together into the great cities where industry can be carried on most profitably, and, by thus throwing great masses in one spot, it gives to the proletarians a consciousness of their own strength. Moreover, the further this process advances, the more new labor-saving machines are invented, the greater is the pressure exerted by big industry on wages, which, as we have seen, sink to their minimum and therewith render the condition of the proletariat increasingly unbearable. The growing dissatisfaction of the proletariat thus joins with its rising power to prepare a proletarian social revolution. Uh, this is a big one. Where do we start? I guess we start with the first. It's interesting that he talks about how like, a world market has already been created. And it's kind of feeling like we're just kind of getting to that now. Yeah, that's know? the overwhelming thing you get from reading a lot of their old writings, other than their, you know, progress is spreading throughout the world to these places that didn't even know history. 
it's kind of fucked up. But other than that, what really sticks out is that this seems much more fitting now. You couldn't have even imagined how much further this had to go. But this feels like the world now. Yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting about Marx and Engels, because there's some ways where it's describing its time. But then there's other things that feel like more like they're describing now than the time they were in. Yeah, totally. You know? In the third one, just to jump ahead a little bit, uh, he kind of states that, you know, surplus capital, surplus proletarian thesis that, you know, misery and debt and end notes is all about, right? And they're really getting that read from like Planet of Slums and that kind of sociology. So true of our times, perhaps even more. If I remember Planet of Slums correctly, one thing it talks about pretty extensively, though, is like the rise of like petty rentiers, which is something that doesn't really kind of get covered here. Again, like I was saying before, Marxism has a problem with rents and needs to, you know, read volume three like I do. Um, (laughs) If we go back to the first one, I think some of that uncomfortable colonialism does tie into their vision of revolution. I think it's a good vision of revolution, considering what actually happened and the problems that it had. However, uh, we do want to restate this in a form that's not just like, well, we just need to civilize people to do it. And then everyone else, it'll just, it'll just happen. Revolution isn't spread on the bayonet. There was a rising proletarian movement in the imperialist core that influenced the periphery. But then somehow the periphery got out ahead of the core. And then you kind of get the 20th century. <laughs> but it's clear that, you know, we really need these capitalist countries, these big dogs to transfer over. And you know what? We have a counterexample. But what if they don't go? Then what happens? Well, then you get locked in a crazy death struggle with the Hydra. Do you see them as conceptualizing the revolution coming out of the core? They do seem a bit overly sanguine about capitalism. I mean, they obviously acknowledge the downside of it, clearly, in terms of affecting like China and India. But they also seem a little bit sanguine about its development of these countries. They don't seem to really get into the way that colonialist development can be maybe more extractive than actually like, you know, developing like independent productive bases. You know, never to the extent that we would find satisfying. That seems like something that emerges more in their later work. Yeah. But I would recommend going back to our stuff on Eurocentrism for this even. Please see our Samir Amin episode on Eurocentrism, number 71, towards a non-Eurocentric view of history. Do we have anything to say about the second point, the displacement of everybody else? There's some historical controversy about this stuff and about the way that different, you know, ruling factions can hang on in capitalism. Um, But, you know, overall, those structures give way to the winds of capital. Are you talking about where it's a second where ever big industries displaced manufacture? I thought that was an interesting section, too, because it leads very much into something consistent with quote-unquote early Marx's establishing one of the key differences between feudalism and capitalism as the introduction of formal equality in citizenship and thus a division between public and private life through the kind of mask of the political citizen. So the bourgeoisie annihilated the power of the aristocracy, the nobility, etc., in their place, it put competition, that is, a state of society in which everyone has the right to enter any branch of production of industry, the only obstacle being a lack of necessary capital. You know, and this implies something Marx develops at length, which is whereas serfs could kind of directly lobby for their political existence in a way 
proletarians can increase their civil rights without affecting the social realm. Not only that, the private world creates the false sense of everyone as equal. I mean, it also fits into his theory of historical materialism and the idea of the class state. You might say it states it a little boldly and that things are a little more mediated than that, but I think it's broadly true. That's it for this week. To all our new listeners from our collaboration with Revolutionary Left Radio and the Antifada, let me be the first to welcome you Swampside and offer a few recommendations to our catalog. Episodes 55, 76, and 78 are a few of our best. 55 is on the structuralist Platonists, Elaine Bedieu, 76 is on the Frankfurt schooler turned new leftist Herbert Marcuse, and 78 is on the 90s post-Marxist Moisha Postone. A fan favorite is our Enemy Camp episodes, where we read fascists and other reactionaries. Number 29 on the cyber nihilist Nick Land, number 44 on the ultra-reactionary Julius Evola, and number 61 on the Unabombing Primitivist, Ted Kaczynski, are some favorites. If you're enjoying our bong rip shenanigans, like our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or, better yet, leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. If you really like us, consider making our efforts seem a little less absurd to the world by subscribing to our Patreon. One dollar a month gets you access to early episodes and our Discord chat. Five a month lets you tune in to our recording sessions. And ten dollars a month for six months gets you a custom episode. You can also grab a custom episode with a $60 lump sum donation to our PayPal. That's paypal.me slash swampsidechats or patreon.com slash swampsidechats. Next week, we're going to drop the rest of Angles on you. And then, in the weeks to come, we're going to knock out a bunch of custom episodes for the fans. So, until next week, keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.